This is the Alpaca Podcast for all things alpaca. If you're an owner, a soon-to-be owner, a want-to-be owner, or are just alpaca mad or love the fleece, welcome to the Alpaca Tribe. I'm Steve Hetherington. Steve here and welcome to the Alpaca Tribe, the podcast for alpaca people. I am delighted to bring to you an episode this week with an interview with Marty McGee-Bennett of Camelid Dynamics. I first met Marty in person back in 2009 on a four-day course, a Camelid Dynamics course, and it was just such a fantastic experience to be immersed in the teaching and approach that she has to working with camelids in a gentle and respectful way. You'll hear how Marty first met llamas and fell in love with them, and how she developed her distinctive handling approach based on the foundation work of Linda Tellington-Jones, who worked with horses. Here she is. So welcome to this episode of Alpaca Tribe, and we have a special guest today, Marty McGee-Bennett, all the way from, well, I was going to say sunny Florida, but actually it's raining there, and we've got the sun in Wales instead, which is a strange phenomena for sure. But welcome, Marty. It's great to have you on the show. It's wonderful to be here with you. I was looking back, and I realized that I first met you in September 2009, which is an awful long time ago, isn't it? And that was at Kilnwood Alpacas in the UK, in England. It was the intensive course, and it was just fantastic. Four days, just so, so enjoyed that and learned so much. And I still <laughs> feel like I'm learning, but that's the nature of these things. My next travel, if it works out, is England, actually, in March. Right. Oh, well, let's hope it works out. Yeah. Very good. Now, I know you've had involvement with both llamas and alpacas and I think there may even have been a camel in the mix for a while my usual question is to ask about alpacas but I'm going to adjust my question for you to be when did you meet your first llama and how did it make you feel well I was raising sheep and at the time I was married to my first husband and we wanted to raise something that you didn't have to eat and so we gravitated to exotic breeds of sheep that you could sell breeding stock and I saw an article in the Smithsonian magazine in 1981. And it was about llamas. And I saw pictures of them and I was really intrigued. And it turned out there was a farm about two hours away in Pennsylvania, where I was living at the time. And I went and saw them. And when I saw them, it was like love at first sight, really. I saw this whole group of necks and long ears and long eyelashes and the banana ears on llamas. And at the time, there was not an alpaca business. So it was just llamas back then. And I just fell in love. And I don't think, at least I don't have a recollection of seeing a camelid before that in a zoo or anything else. So that was a pivotal moment in my life. It really was. Yeah, it's strange. I keep talking about people having like an alpaca gene that means that they connect with alpacas uh, or camelids. I, I know alpacas well, but I, I've met a few llamas, and they, they seem amazing as well. But I'm just not so familiar with they're a bit taller and they look down on you. And I'm kind of going, hmm, OK, alpacas, I'm used to llamas, not so much. But there's something about the connection with them that's very specific. Some people get it and some people, they like them, but there's not that really strong connection. I've noticed the same thing. I think 
sometimes the way we handle the animals and, and the way they behave, if it wasn't for that kind of genetic marker that we have, I'm not so sure that we would be as successful for as long because it is something that it doesn't matter whether or not they're not interested in you. You just love them. And as we all know, they can be a little bit standoffish at first until they learn to trust you and want to be around you. So it's good that we have this kind of genetic marker for them. I certainly felt that. Mm. And I, I was in love immediately. So you, you started with llamas. Now, you you, you saw, saw one and then you, you had the sheep. You, you were planning to get llamas to protect the sheep? or No, uh, I wanted to get llamas to, for their wool. They were another addition to the farm. And at the time, uh, okay. there was a two-year waiting list to get a breeding pair of llamas. Really? Wow. Yeah. And they were very pricey. They were very unusual in the United States and they were very pricey. And so I got on the waiting list and I, being the way that I am, I called like once a month to see if I was, you know, <laughs> if I could move up. And yeah. there was a recession and the list kind of fell apart. And I ended up getting mine about a year instead of two years oh, and yeah. received this breeding pair sight unseen delivered to my house in the back of a truck. They jumped off like wild animals. And the guy said, <laughs> you know, in good order luck. To get, yeah, that's right. Basically, <laughs> good luck. Put them in a corner, grab them around the neck and, and hold on. That was what he said. And these were animals that weighed, you know, 350 pounds. Yeah. So that's a tall order. It is. Well, definitely a tall order. <laughs> so a lot of a lot of a lot of neck to hang on to. Yes, it oh, is. Oh dear. And it's yeah. as we know is not the best approach either. So what was the name of the, the breeding pair? Did they come with names or did you give them I named them and they and I named them after two uh, cities in South America, Tingo and Talara. Right. Oh, well, Tingo was Tingo was the male. They were both about a year and a half old. And uh, I'll never forget going to the barn one time and seeing Talara, the female, just, you know, hanging her mouth open with all this green stuff dripping out. And I thought she'd been poisoned. And so I called the vet immediately. I had no idea about what it looked like when they'd had a spit fight. And when they finally got to be actually doing some breeding, I came out there and I, I didn't know what that looked like either. So Tingo was, you know, looked like he was beating up on Talara. So I had to kind of pull him off and, you know, kind of interrupt everything because I thought he was hurting her. <laughs> he wouldn't be best pleased about that, would he? No. Uh, there was precious little known. I mean, there there was a, a three-page newsletter called the 3L Llama Newsletter back then, and that was about it. No other information. Right. Goodness me. That's really getting in at the deep end, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> it, it, it was the pioneer days. There yeah. was really nothing. It, it sounds like you actually enjoyed it and thrived on that as well, though. I did. Yeah, I think you've got a natural curiosity having contact with you on courses and various things and knowing that you continually are adapting and developing the techniques because you're constantly looking to learn. And I think that's a really important approach to working with, with camelids. I, I agree. And I'm going on 40 years now of working with these animals. And I, I don't have a particularly long attention span, really. But and I, I never when I first saw them thought that I would be doing it for my entire life. Basically, I saw my first camelid when I was 23. So I'm amazed. But the reason that I have maintained an interest in these animals is that they've taken me from one thing to another to another, packing the wool and then the behavior and the training. It's just it, it's been 
the most wonderful ride ever. Yeah. So what was the initial kind of thing that, or the interest that, that, that led you towards the behavior and the, the handling techniques that you then be, began to develop? Well, wool was what kind of got me started. But then I had a horse and I was, he was a big black thoroughbred stallion and I was intimidated by him. I'd been a horse kid when I was in high school, but I've never handled a stallion. And quite by accident, I met this guy and I was chatting him up about horses. He was wearing riding boots. He came into a craft store that I was babysitting. And uh, he said, oh, my goodness, you need to know about this woman, Linda Tellington Jones. And he was Canadian. He was traveling in the United States. And he said, I'm going to send you a bunch of information. When I get home, it'll be about a month. And darned if he didn't do it. And I got these newsletters and I'm looking through the newsletters. And here's a picture of Linda working with a camel. And then I was like, oh, my gosh, this is like one stop shopping. I can get information on the horses. I can chatter up about camels and camelids and. So I was writing articles for the trade publication at the time, Llamas Magazine. And I asked them if they'd pay my way to a Linda Tellington Jones clinic and I'd write an article about it. So I went to the clinic and I was absolutely blown away by the work that she did with horses and really interested in translating it to camelids. And that's what basically got me started. Mm. And... I remember on the course you talked about, I and mean, there's various names for the different touches and things that are that are used, but one being the Python touch. Yes. So where, where did where did the because it's not just with horses and camelids. Linda's work is used on anything with a nervous system, so all animals, and she also has quite a following in the human disciplines, healing disciplines, but. Once I met Linda, I just wanted to know everything she knew right away. It's the way I do anything. I just jump in with both hands and both feet. And she was going to Australia and she was going to be leaving a camel safari so I could ride camels. And it was the closest thing to, to llamas that I could get to with Linda at that time. This was in 1984, I believe. Mm. And so I signed up for this trip. It was a total of uh, 40 days, actually on the road. And part of it was camel riding. Part of it was going to the San Diego Zoo. And that's where the Python story starts. Linda was working, was doing a demonstration at the San Diego Zoo on, and she was working with Joyce, the Python and all of, all of the acolytes that were going on this trip with her were in the audience watching her work with, with this Python. And she's doing these little things that were just called lifts at that time. And then she invited us all up to go on stage with her. And we each, this python was 11 feet long or 14 feet long. So we all just took a spot on this python and we were all lined up doing these little lifts that we had learned about. And Joyce raised up and put her head on Linda's shoulder. It was just remarkable. And she was having respiratory issues because she was 14 feet long living in a cage or a, a you know a glass aquarium kind mm -hmm. of thing that was only about six feet square so unless she was taken out for visitors she could never stretch out and she developed these respiratory problems and the python lifts that we were doing on her were meant to help and clearly they were she was very 
appreciative. At least it seemed like it to us that she had her head on Linda's shoulder and was flicking her cheek with her tongue as we were working. Amazing. Wow. And that captures something. Um, it kind of touches you as an individual, but it, it kind of captures something. And, and you, I'm sure you were feeling that you wanted more of that and, and in the different settings as well, particularly with the, the llamas. Yes. Yeah. But that entire trip, the closest I came to working with a llama would have been a camel. And we, we rode and we did the tea touch on the camels. And I learned a whole lot about camels on that trip. And I also, we had these Australian cameleers, they were called, just put us on these camels on at two o'clock in the afternoon. And we didn't get off until eight o'clock at night. And we were, it was brutal. Absolutely brutal. Sounds it. Goodness me. We were begging to get off and walk them. <laughs> oh dear. You don't get often an opportunity to, to be around camels much anyway, but to spend as much time with a camel. And obviously alpacas and, and llamas, South American camelids, but are there similarities between camels and, and the South American camelids? Oh, yeah. yeah. Quite a lot of similarities, actually. They, you know, they're, they're sort of shy around people because they have been selected to be ridden and, and handled. They're more accepting of being touched, I think, than a lot of, a lot of alpacas are. But they have very similar personalities, a similar face. They, they have very tiny ears compared to both alpacas and llamas. But there's a, you know, you, you sense the same kinship with camels that you do with llamas and alpacas. Mm. At least I did. I, I loved being around them. Yeah. So going back to, to you and the llamas, when you got back home, were there things that you needed to kind of fix? Were there problems that you were facing with them? Or was it just a curiosity and, and trying to develop use that those techniques you've been exposed to in a different setting. How, how did the whole Camelid Dynamics thing develop? Well, when I got home from that trip, I was a changed person. I, I had been a horse kid growing up. I was, you know, a subscriber to the Ropum Time Brandom variety of horse training. You know, horses had to be dominated. You had to be the boss. This was also a long time ago, back in the 80s. And... So I just approached llamas the same way. And when the guy that dropped them off said, you put them in a corner and you hold on and you, and you absolutely don't let them go. If you pick up a foot, the worst thing you can possibly do is let them pull that foot away from you. You have to win. If they do, you're just completely sunk. I bought into all of that and that's the way I handled my llamas. And so when I would go out to the barn, they would run out the barn door and get away from me as far as they could. And of course, why wouldn't they? And I mean, I was a predator from their point of view. I was also a predator that fed them, which must really mess with your brain if you're a... <laughs> do, I, do I trust? Do I hate? Right, exactly. Exactly. It's a, it's a, it must be a real love-hate relationship because we do so much for them, but we also do so much to them that they don't like and, and it scares them. Mm. So... So when I got home from being on this trip, I, I learned about how to educate an animal, how to understand an animal, how profound the connection can be, how you don't need to be the boss. You can get cooperation in, in, by creating a team and that sort of thing. Mm. 
And so I came home and the, the issues with llamas and alpacas are quite different than the issues with horses. Horses arrive with much more acceptance of being touched because they've been selected for that. So I started looking at flight response and escape routes and how I could work with llamas and alpacas in a way that didn't scare them and that they could be more trusting of me. And that's what led to catch pens and the wand and the mm. rope and yeah. desensitizing them to approach and giving them freedom within a con confined space. That's the secret, I think, to what Camelot Dynamics really is. And of course, I use the T-Touch as well. Once they're safe with me standing next to them, then I can show them that I have some other value besides throwing <laughs> food at them. So. Yeah. And... You know, I was thinking of what is the kind of foundational philosophy uh, behind Camelot Dynamics, and you, you've already sort of started to touch on that, that, that it's, it's creating a safe space that they can be in that's a smaller space because, because they do have long legs and they can move very quickly when they want to. Right, there's no outrunning them. I guess both of us have tried at various times. <laughs> you just can't do it, can you? Oh, dear. No, and for the most part, you really can't out-wrestle them. I mean, I knew that very clearly with llamas. But yeah. even with alpacas, I've seen big men, you know, go ass over tea kettle in the show ring because you, you, to try to hold them still without the benefit of some kind of corner is, is quite difficult. Not that I would want to do that, mind you. I think I have... Five things that I think about as the pillars of Camelot Dynamics. I want to do things that feel safe. I want to be kind. I want to be respectful. I want to have fun. And I want all of that to be supported by good science, by a scientific approach to the behavior of animals and how to work with that to your advantage and still have the animals feel safe in their environment. That's what Camelot Dynamics is. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. It's certainly my experience of it. I'd, I'd come across um, some of your work and, and the book and the video, and and then I did a, a short course with Julie Taylor-Brown. And that that was just – it. there was something – I couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> I hear that <laughs> back a lot. With, back with my alpacas because I'd experienced it with these animals that were – well, they were the same. They were alpacas, but they weren't my alpacas. And I wanted to, to put it all into practice. Now, of course, you can't go rushing in there and say, hey, I've learned this new thing. Look, and you've got to take your time. But it was a revelation. And there was something that I realized that goes on with, with this whole thing. That is, <laughs> how much are you training uh, or, or teaching the alpacas? And how much are you training and teaching the handlers or the owners, and realized that I had as much, if not more, to learn than the alpacas ever did. And that sense of you need to have a system that is following those pillars and is, is actually not going to change. You don't do one thing one day and then suddenly do something different because they learn and, and understand how you function. And you've got to work with them and then become a team, as you say. Well, there's handling animals. And then mm. there's training them. Handling is kind of doing something to them. If you're going to be a really good handler, you have to, and that's important because most of the time we're outnumbered by our animals. I mean, if you have one dog, it's, it's a lot different than if you're trying to work with 30 alpacas or even mm. 15 alpacas. It's a lot more work. So you can't really do anything 
with an animal as a team if they're afraid of you. So job one is to behave in a way that your animals can feel safe in your presence. And that's the thing that you do first, is that you demonstrate to them that you're not going to take away from them the thing they need most to feel safe in the world, which is being able to get away. And that's why I work in a catch pen. Once you've put an animal in a corner, held it against its will, you may make some progress, but it's not going to be the kind of progress that leads to trust and confidence and and an acceptance of handling. It's always going to be, it's always going to be a force issue. You're going to have to hold them still. And I don't like to handle animals that way. Mm. And I don't think it's, I don't think it's as effective or as safe or as efficient. No, no, indeed. And the, the whole kind of volume thing, because, you know, rounding up a herd of sheep with dogs and, and uh, you know, I hear, hear neighbours around us here and they're, they're, they're shouting and, and pushing and calling and, and I'm thinking, oh, my alpacas just wouldn't like that. No. <laughs> they were, they're not going to respond to that. And the sheep don't like it either. I'm sure, I'm sure, yeah. yeah. And that whole kind of thing of let them see, let them understand uh, and feel safe around you. I mean, I, I've had some, even one this year, she was starting to give birth and she came looking for me. Aww. Which was really sweet, and it's kind of what, and then and then it's, it's a, a sort of maiden, and it was kind of what, what is this? What, what's, what's that hanging out the back? <laughs> sort of spinning around, trying to trying to see this thing that was starting to arrive, and I, I, over time, I probably take for granted just how much they do trust me. I can't imagine going backwards. Actually, I mean, once you have it, you'd never go back. Yeah, but it, it's always on their terms, and I suppose in some ways, a bit like cats, and that they they can be very friendly, but. Not always. <laughs> and certainly not if you try to hold them when they want to get away. Then yeah. they really are like cats. It's the, yeah. they are, a matter of fact, years ago I wrote an article called Cats and Camelids and compared cats with camelids. And in fact, there's a lot of physiological similarities. They, they're both copulation induced ovulators. They spit when they're mad. They lay in the same tea cozy position. They've been revered by people as godlike. It's an interesting historical trip to to look at cats and camelids they're much more like cats than they are like dogs yeah that's for sure oh yes so you started and and started to learn about them started to to work with them started to work out the the principles which became formulated later on i guess and once you'd learned things you started to teach other people How, how did that develop and, you know, I think when I was sitting in this very, very cold indoor arena watching Linda Tellington-Jones work with these horses, that, that was my first exposure to Linda, was watching her teach a clinic. I thought, that's what I want to do. I want right. to teach people and awaken them to what I'm... I must have hit my my hand on my forehead 20 times while I was watching her work with these horses. Like, oh my <laughs> gosh, I cannot believe I, I, I've been around horses my whole life and didn't know about this. I aspired to be a teacher right away. And Linda kept saying, kept sort of holding me back and saying, you know, just be patient, which be patient, grasshopper. And (laughs) I was anything but. So I finally wore her down and she gave me the green light after studying with her for um, about two and a half years. And I went to probably 10 week-long clinics with her during that period of time. I was on the road all the time attending these trainings and learning my new craft. 
and then started teaching. My first clinic was in Southern California in, I believe, 1986 or seven. I can't remember. Hmm. And I've been on the road teaching ever since. Yeah, (laughs) seems to be that way, except of late. Yes, except of late. Not being quite so easy with the, the other things. So international, not just in in the US, but but very much international, certainly to the UK, because that's where I met you. Very hands-on and where people are and where their animals are. So how have you actually been, therefore, adjusting to the the whole kind of thing with the pandemic and when you've not been able to travel? Because I, I know traveling, if you're doing a lot of it, it's just very tiring. But at the same time, that meeting the new people, seeing the new situations and being able to teach people as you do, then that that must be very satisfying. But you've just not been able to do it. So what have you been doing? Well, it's interesting because for about the last three years on the road, I have, I have, I got a new puppy. He'll be three in December. And I, I've just fallen in love with this dog and I hated leaving him. And I, and I've been threatening to take a year off for a long time. And I'm really sorry that the rest of the world had to take this year off with me. I apologize. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but um, I don't think we can blame you. But okay. <laughs> I really, it was well timed because I really needed a break. I, I really, I really mm. needed a break. And and now that I've had one, I'm chomping at the bit to get back at it. But in the meantime, I do have, you know, I think, you know, I wanted to join the the new information age. Hi, sorry to break into Marty's flow at this point. Just as she's going to talk about getting into the information age. We had a a great conversation which ranged longer and wider than originally intended. So we actually have another episode coming next week to complete the story. But at least we've heard something about who is Marty McGee Bennett and why is Marty McGee Bennett. That pursuit of knowledge and passion for learning and growing fully in both hands, both feet. That's the way she learns and pursues things. We will hear more about what she's been doing during the pandemic and how she's currently available, what she's planning to do in terms of traveling and the workshops, but also how you can connect with her in the meantime. So there'll be information in the show notes and links to her website, etc. But there's another episode to come next week, which will finish the story. Well, this chapter of it anyway. Thanks for being here. Glad you were able to experience what I experienced in this conversation with Marty. Hope you enjoyed it and found something really useful coming out of that. Look forward to seeing you again soon. Bye for now. This is the Alpaca Tribe, and I'm Steve Hetherington. Have a great day.